Welcome to Beyond Infinity. Piers Cunningham with you. I'm joined today by Guy West, who is a professional share market investor, a a so-called Section 708 investor, and the owner of an internet company, also a chess master. So welcome, Guy West. Thanks, Piers. And also by a regular contributor to the program, Ian Storey, lecturer in information security at the Business School of Torrens University. Welcome, Ian. Thank you, Piers. Gentlemen, there's some interesting stuff we want to talk about relating to markets. And, you know, one of the things that's uh, been so kind of stunning in a way in the last 18 months, or certainly, the you know, in 2020, most of which we were in pandemic from late February onwards, when the WHO declared a global pandemic, you know, so a lot of people were working from home, a lot of people were out of work, uh, and yet equity markets, in particular Wall Street, have been just having the most incredible run. And some people would say it's unsustainable. Some people would say, oh, it's the result of people being forced home. What, what else can they do with their money? You know, they're not able to spend it on travel. Those that kept their jobs had more money to play with. So, so they were attracted to online investment in equities and other asset classes. Um, so starting with Guy, um, as a professional share market investor, what, what are your observations about the time that we're in? How have you found uh, that the last year? Has it been different to normal years for you? Give us your view of the way equity markets have had such a strong run, despite people being out of jobs and uh, companies operating in difficult uh, conditions. Okay. Um, well, firstly, uh, I, I would agree that we are living through absolutely extraordinary times when it comes to markets. I've never seen anything like this in my uh, maybe forty years of share market investing. It's um, it's been quite a roller coaster ride. Uh, when the the markets plunged because of the um, COVID pandemic, they were they were at pretty much all time highs, and uh, the market was probably looking for an excuse to, to tank, I think, at that point. Uh, and, and COVID provided a really good real-world reason for that to happen. Now, what's, what's happened since the market plunged about 35-odd percent? I, I, don't, I don't think many people would have predicted it. Uh, it's been the most extraordinarily vicious uh, rebound, uh, taking especially the US market to new all-time highs. And uh, so, of course, all the um, all, all the arm, armchair experts have you know <laughs> have rushed to try to um, explain why this has happened. It certainly took me by surprise, and I, I think really it took most um, you know even expert traders by surprise. The, I think the main reason is not so much an army of um, of new millennial traders sitting at home and using you know software apps like Robinhood. Uh, I, I think it's more just the the fact that with interest rates so low and actually going negative in some countries, uh, there's there's just very, very few places where large amounts of money, you know, trillions of dollars, can be parked with any kind of return. So when, when money has nowhere to go, then uh, places like the share market where you have liquidity and, uh, you know, the ability to park large amounts of money, earning what seem at the moment to be reasonable yields, then, then that becomes attractive. So when, when the market plunged, 
you, you had a huge amount of money wanting to find a home. Um, property has been fairly high and some people see it as, as in a bubble itself, certainly in Australia. Mm. So the share market still came back into people's calculations even though it had, even though it had suffered a, a severe hit. And uh, so that's why I think we saw a wave of buying come in. And the other thing is that governments around the world have thrown trillions of dollars of stimulus at, at trying to um, you know, ease economies through this um, COVID crisis. And the result of that is that there's been even more money trying to find a home. And uh, I think that's the fundamental reason why markets have rebounded so much more spectacularly than anyone expected. See, I understood that after the global financial crisis in 2008, where the subprime problem in America and, and financial regulation, all those sort of things came into the spotlight, uh, and, and there was big stimulus undertaken all around the world to sort of bail the system out or bail, bail uh, people out, banks and the like, out. I'm just surprised that there was much as much left in the tank to be able to have so much stimulus for the COVID pandemic. Well, that, that's the that's the great thing about being a government or a reserve bank. You can simply print more money. So, um, I mean, it's it's a very good point. That you know, where where does all this money come from? Well, the the answer is it comes out of thin air. Governments can create as much money as they want, provided that they are willing to where the consequences of that further down the track. So, um, for instance, when the when the uh, German Weimar Republic um, had to find money to pay uh, reparations for the World War, no problem. They they just simply went to the printing presses and created money to pay to pay the money they owed. But of course, we all know what happened. There was hyperinflation and people running around with wheelbarrows full of money just to buy a loaf of bread. So somewhere down the down the track, we're going to have to pay the piper for all this money that governments have created out of thin air in order to uh, soften the blow of the um, economic shock that COVID's caused. Mm-hmm. Ian, There's, have you got any questions for, for on this subject? Um, lots of questions. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's, it's not really my main area, but when you look into how money is is generated, it's really quite interesting. The debt that's created by lending from the government goes to to certain banks, then that's fed through the system to you or me. But as it feeds through the system, the, ent- the interest rate rises. Correct me if I'm wrong anyway, here, Guy. No, it's correct. So, yeah, so the people who get the first dibs at the cheap money can even pay out bad debts that they've had in the previous run. So, uh, yep. Yeah, yeah. You, I think you're talking about um, the, the so-called Cantillon effect. Where, yeah, the Cantillon, yeah. Yeah, where the, um, uh, the, the money that's created isn't dispersed instantaneously in an even manner. It, it um, filters through to some... Uh, parts of the economy before others, and those parts have the advantage of being able to spend it before the inflationary effect, um, you know, take, takes effect. So, uh, what happens is that some people get a huge advantage over others by it. 
and of course the the first people who get um, to take advantage of any money created are government. So they they in effect um, increase their own uh, wealth and spending power at, at the expense of the ordinary citizen without actually you know or future taxpayers. Yeah, exactly. Without without actually um, you know having it approved by um, by those taxpayers. So, um, well, yeah, pre- previously they had, um, well, in America anyway, the famous uh, laws um, against this, uh, what were they called? Against investment banks. They separated investment banks from what we, which you could call development banks, Glass-Steagall. Over time that got eroded and then the 2008 crash happened. So they tightened up the, the laws again so that, People who got the cheap money had to wear the risk of it. Yeah, you, you're getting into a, an interesting area that um, I think it goes under the sort of broad heading of moral hazard. Um, and, and I'm not talking about yeah. um, well, non-morals. I'm talking about financial moral hazard. Mm. Yeah, financial um, perverse incentives, I guess you would yeah. say. And an example uh, of that was, was where um, banks were receiving money, stimulus money from... Uh, government and and also paying it out to shareholders in dividends, that was actually banned. I believe they they put a a, a halt last year on divi- yeah. on dividends from banks because of that exact issue. Moral hazard. Yeah, but actually, you're right. The government's in this as well. The government has perverse incentives, especially a not so good government. I don't know what you what you think of uh, Donald Trump, <laughs> but he certainly wanted to stimulate the stock market. By any mean, you know, any means possible. Yes. Um, yeah, and and uh, you know, so all of these walls against these kind of um, perverse incentives. People often quote uh, Japan as a as an example where they had negative interest rates, but things went well. But I think uh, the difference with Japan, and correct me again, you know. Um, uh, I'm not an I'm not an expert in this area. The difference with Japan seems to me that they were able to invest back into Japan. They had a, tight controls over over the financialization that has stayed within Japan, rather than um, being free a free for all. And they also have a, a very high savings rate. Uh, so a lot of people have money under the mattress, and and uh, exactly, uh, and yeah. or or in a was, safe. It wasn't just it wasn't just companies who held that debt. It was actually people, and mm. and they had, they also invested in the system. Yeah. Mm. Um, but but you're right. I mean, Japan is an interesting uh, place because it's a it's a very rich country. But they they did have that sort of uh, that zero. They had negative growth um, from from sort of the the end of the eighties and the end of that 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 uh, eighty seven crash. Um, Japan had. It was kind of funny, like, you know, property over in Japan is really cheap. Um, even now it's cheap. So it's, 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 it's an interesting country to kind of focus on and try to explain how you can sort of be one thing but also have these other underlying economic factors. Ian is a mathematician and Guy is a chess master. Guy, do you apply your expertise in chess to the way that you you approach professional share market investing? There are some 
similarities, I suppose. There, there are some principles in uh, in high-level chess that uh, can be applied to the share market. It's not a sort of a, a straightforward um, transfer of skill sets, but, um, I mean, there, there are things like um, in chess you, you're you always um, having to balance attack and defence, so you, you don't over-commit on the attack. You, you only... You only sort of attack um, in a way which, you know, which sort of allows you a, an escape route if it doesn't work, if you, if you can understand what I'm saying. Yep. And similarly, with markets, you, you, you can't sort of um, put all your eggs in, in, uh, in one basket and just assume that the market's going to behave the way you expect it will. You, you've got to be ready for any eventuality. Um, and uh, th- there are other things too, like... Um, Things like flexibility, um, you, you need to be very economical and not... In chess, for instance, you, you can't afford to spend two or three moves doing something that you could have done in one move. There are some similarities in the market where um, you've, you know, you, you've got to sort of make decisions and execute them in the, the most economical way possible. You don't, you don't want to sort of do it in drips and drabs. Mm. Um, yeah, and sort of end up paying more in brokerage, but um, I'd, I'd say overall the most important thing that you, you get out of chess is understanding the importance of pat- pattern recognition. Yeah. And um, pat- pattern recognition is very important in um, in the share markets. You you tend to see the same things repeating themselves over and over again. And almost every time this happens, there's some new explanation about why it's different this time. And it always turns out to not be different. It's what people call a paradigm shift. They always go, oh, it's different now. There's been a paradigm shift. But the paradigm shift does almost always end up getting burnt. And this, this goes way back to, uh, I remember in, um, back in 1929, um, there was a professor at, at at Yale, a professor of economics, who said that it would, it would appear that the markets have reached a new permanent high plateau. <laughs> and of course, that, that was only months before um, <laughs> the, the great uh, crash that ushered in the Great Depression. So, um, yeah, it, it, it never works, um, thinking that things are somehow different and that, that magically we, we've kind of escaped the cycle of boom and bust. Yeah, that, that's probably the most important thing is to recognise patterns and to go, yep, I've seen this all before. Like, you know, Bitcoin at over $50,000, I've, I've seen it all before. You know, I've seen penny mining stocks go to hundreds of dollars in the Poseidon boom. You know, we all remember that, you know, at one stage a tulip bulb would buy you a house in Holland. Um, <laughs> there was a South Sea radio bubble that's a dot com yeah, boom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've seen it all before. The South Sea bubble. That was the one that Newton. Um, That's right. Uh, famously invested in. Correct. Yeah. It doesn't matter how smart you are, you can still fall victim to human psychology. And, uh, and, and no one was allowed to talk about it ever in his presence after that. <laughs> I, I'm a bit like that with the stocks that I've invented. <laughs> yes, uh, anyone mentions them, they get the silent treatment. Right, Guy. Do you? So it sounds like you look more at charts rather than the fundamentals of a business that you might be investing in. Is that right? No, I um, no, I think the fundamentals are very important. And, um, 
it, when I talk about pattern recognition, part of that pattern recognition is is recognizing when when fundamentals are being thrown out the window and, and valuations are being based on things other than fundament, fundamental value. And my belief is that over time, um, you know, stocks will revert back to, to to some sort of fundamental value. Now you can you can argue a bit over what that fundamental value should be, but you know, once, once you start to, um, to to throw in really extreme scenarios, like you know, like saying that every car in the world is going to be a Tesla within you know ten years or something in order to to justify the ridiculous share price, mm. that that's when I start to go, no, that's that's not fundamental. That's that's science fiction. So you combine both. You combine the sort of mathematical chart-based <laughs> approach and statistical um, analysis as well as consideration of fundamentals. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably more of a fundamentalist. I, I keep an eye on, on charts because I think it's important to to know what, you know, what chartists are doing because they're such a huge proportion of um, traders. Mm. So if, if a stock starts to go into free fall, you can pretty much bet that momentum traders and chartists are going to pile on themselves. Um, and also short sellers get, um, you know, they're like sharks, they get attracted to blood in the water. So you can't ignore things like that. You can't just go, oh, look, fundamentally, this stock shouldn't be getting sold down the way it is. If, if the market's telling you that um, that the sky is falling, you, you have to get out of the way. But um, uh, overall, I tend to be a counter-cyclical fundamentalist sort of investor. Just going to the subject of GameStop, which I know is is something that Ian's particularly interested in. Leading up to perhaps to talking about GameStop, let me just say, firstly, I sort of have an academic angle on it. Um, I teach risk. In information security, there is such a thing as investing in risk, but you're, you're kind of investing the other way. You're investing to minimise loss. But um, not many people do it that way. They kind of, they keep it really quite simple. So compared to investing over a portfolio, really it, it's rarely done in that kind of complicated way. So handling stocks where you, the, the, mathematically, the best outcome for a stock is to put all your money on the stock with the highest return, the highest expected value, what they call expected value, but the highest return. Of course, what that does is to increase risk. So you lower risk to spread your risk over various stock and lower the chance of loss, but accept a slightly lower expected value payout. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that that does. Yeah, it's an an interesting area because one thing is that um, you, you have to remember that uh, when you lose money, if you make a one hundred percent loss, that that money is gone. You've lost it. But if you if you make a profit, you've got to pay capital gains tax on that profit. And um, if you don't then get a corresponding loss to set against it, you know you're not getting the full value. So it's not oh, completely equitable. I didn't realise that. So I've been looking at it from a mathematical point of view. You know, my students are certainly interested in, in uh, portfolios and things. What I found when I looked at the numbers and the stock market is that the stock market, when things go up, a lot of things go up together. 
And when things go down, a lot of things go down together. So it is really hard to to spread to to what they call hedge. Yes, there's, um, there's a there's a saying that um, a rising tide floats all boats, and and that's very much the case. Oh, perfect market. way to put it. Yes, yeah, perfect. If, if you if you invest in a in a bull market, you you will soon come to the realization that you are the greatest genius that ever existed, because all your yeah. stocks are going up. Oh, and yeah. everybody else will as well. They'll all exactly. talk about you. And, and, and so, <laughs> yeah, you can get whole communities who are convinced of their own invulnerability as market traders and, and I oh, think good point yeah and then they at the moment and then they hit a hit the cliff and they all go down together they all those all go down them. together and, and yeah. Uh, yeah there's a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth and then you know everyone treats the share market as if it's anathema for 10 years until they've all forgotten and the next generation what? come along and make the same mistake hmm. when yeah. I when I looked at a couple of scenarios and you include in stock that are negatively correlated, that go down when the others go up, or go up when the others go down. Depending on how much they do that, you can really improve your chance of loss. You can, let me put this <laughs> carefully, you can reduce your chance of loss with a, you know, a small um, reduction in your expected payout. Um, so people who who take this approach are looking for these things that go in the opposite direction when things are likely to to crash. Yes, and, there, there, um, there are a number of um, of ways you can hedge, as you've described. Um, for instance, uh, for, for people out there listening... Correct me if I'm using the word edge slightly incorrectly, but... No, no, that, that's correct. You're, you're, you're taking out insurance against um, the market going the op- or the share going the opposite way that you, you want it to. So there are, there are some very good instruments. So for people listening, um, if you've got a lot of shares in the market and you're, you're concerned that the market's going to fall, um, you can, for instance buy shares in something like the Better Shares Big Bear Fund, yep. which is something I've got shares in, and, and those shares are negatively correlated to the share market. So if, if the market goes up 100 points, my BBOZ shares, BBOZ is their code, and they're fairly highly leveraged to the, to the market, they will fall by quite a large amount. Um, so, you know, all, all my other shares might go up and BBOZ will, will fall. But similarly, if um, if all the other shares are falling, BBOZ could have a really big rise. And oh, I just I just got why it's called Big Bear. Okay, very yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Bear as in a bearish market. Uh, yeah, being careful. Yeah, yeah. The extreme end of that hedging. I've been talking to Guy about the possibility of gold or things like Bitcoin on silver or whatever. But the, you know, which is really not looking for a negative correlation, but looking for something safe. But the extreme end of that is finding a short that goes in the other direction. And these shorts are usually artificially created by financiers, as I understand it. On that subject, could we bring in GameStop? Because I think that's a it's a prime example, isn't it? Good, good idea. Yeah, yeah. Did you want some background on GameStop? Please do, Guy. So GameStop um, became famous recently because the share price, which had been limping along, you know, under $10 a share. In fact, I think they had a low of about $2.57 a share. 
they got um, they got forced up to well over four hundred dollars a share. Um, so there were massive fortunes made, and the the reason this happened is um, uh, well, firstly, GameStop are uh, a, a company in the US that I think um, deal in videos and things like that. They're they're a sort of a bricks and mortar video seller, and um, yeah, like a like a video library for yeah. video games. That's right, and, and so they they could be considered to be a little bit last century. You know, they're, mm. they're, they're not really yeah, yeah. moving with the digital times. Anyway, GameStop uh, had been languishing because of that, and then what happened was a group of share traders on a platform called Reddit. There's a subgroup in Reddit, a forum which is called Wall Street Bets. Yep. So it's it's just an online forum where people discuss their um, share trading, but they have a very strong sense of community, and it's it's mainly populated by sort of youngish, you know, uh, millennial males, uh, you know, very familiar with the whole digital economy, and uh, they're fairly switched on to um, using um, trading platforms like Robinhood, which are, are cheap to use and make share trading very accessible. This group grew to several million, and that, they would be spending a lot of time, you know, discussing markets and their and their trades and boasting about it. Fairly kind of wild west sort of environment. Anyway, some leaders emerged on on this forum, Wall Street Bets, who who started to say, "Look, we, we're constantly being shafted by the big players who can use their financial muscle to to short sell stocks and manipulate the price down and then push it up." Oh, no, you can't do it. 
So it's not fair. It's not a it's not a level playing field. Also, it degrades the market because you're betting against economic development. Well, yes, that that that, that can be argued. The short sellers would argue that they are trying to find. They're actually trying to find truth in the market by efficiencies and truth. Yeah, yeah efficiencies. Yeah, by by being able to pick on stocks that that are trading higher than they should be. But in in practice, you're absolutely right. They they're a good way of manipulating the market, and um, they can cause real world disasters that wouldn't have happened if they if they if the stock wasn't being short sold. So anyway, what happens with GameStop is that these big hedge funds were short. So they, they had sold shares which they didn't own in order to force the GameStop share price down. And suddenly the this forum, the Wall Street Bets forum, all got together. They rallied around a guy called Michael Frawley, who had the, I think he had the handle of deep effing value, um, which gives <laughs> some sort of indication of the kind of characters that were inhabiting this world. You know, fairly colourful characters. So anyway, deep effing value told all the other traders, look, why don't we all get together and instantaneously and, and together buy shares in GameStop and that will force the price up really quickly and it will burn those hedge funds who are short because instead of buying the shares back cheaply, which they were planning to do, suddenly they will have to they'll have to buy the shares at a very high price. And that's exactly what happened. That somehow he managed to motivate a lot of those millions of of small traders mm. to all simultaneously start buying GameStop shares, and they went from under ten dollars up to four hundred and eighty-three dollars a share. Wow! So, so those hedge funds were, were caught in a, a horrific what they call short squeeze, uh, which sounds painful, and it is. <laughs> and uh, well, I'm told I'm told that one of the um, hedge funds actually, um, uh, I think it was Merlin Capital Management. A big Wall Street um, hedge fund. Uh, <laughs> they needed a 2.75 billion emergency cash infusion in order to stay solvent, right. because they were completely caught out. And, and, and another another group called Citron Capital actually um, got forced to close out their position and took, you know, tens of. Well, I think it was tens of billions of dollars in losses, but uh, oh. it was certainly huge amounts of money that the Wall Street Bets Group managed to. Um, to take off the big hedge funds. God. We should probably tell viewers this is not investment advice. So. They were using Robinhood. Um, Robinhood. Very, very cheap sort of digital trading platform. But um, apparently Robinhood decided that this was sort of getting all a bit out of control and they've actually banned Robinhood users from... Um, they actually banned them from buying or selling shares, I think, in GameStop... AMC and maybe BlackBerry as well. I'm not when, sure. When I looked at it last time, they were they were banned from buying, but not from selling. Uh, okay, yeah, that that could be correct. But I, I know that the um, the Wall Street Bets forum members were outraged about this and and decided that um, that Robin Hood had become just as bad as all the other Wall Street suits, and, and they were up in arms about it. Not not really a Robin Hood at all. Yeah, yeah, and and, and as in steal from the rich and give to the poor. Yeah. The original um, guy who um, who started the Wall Street Bets Forum, a guy called um, Jaime Rogerzinski, who I think was living in Mexico, he, he was the guy that set the whole thing up. But he actually got banned by his own forum because he he wrote a book about Wall Street Bets. He was advertising a, a tournament that he wanted to hold 
uh, a trading tournament in which um, you know the ten best traders on on Wall Street bets or something were going to have a competition to see who could make wow, the most. That would have been interesting. Yeah, that would have been really interesting. And he wanted to get it sponsored by all these big companies. And and I think the winner was supposed to get a million dollars. And it was all, all going to be great fun. But in the process, he was profiting because he had written a book. He was banned by Reddit for yeah under the terms of the forum for for profiting. You're not allowed to advertise your own business or anything. So he got kicked out. And and actually, the other Wall Street bets forum members kind of turned against him a bit and said that he was greedy. So it's all it's all very um, interesting and a lot of kind of colourful human interaction going on there. Um, I might say that GameStop, after reaching a, a you know heady um, level of four hundred eighty three dollars a share, have, did collapse back to. I think under forty dollars a share. Although in the last couple of days they've doubled again, so it's incredibly volatile. I think they're currently about ninety odd dollars a share. So they're nowhere near their low of two dollars fifty seven, but they're also nowhere near their high of four hundred eighty three dollars. It's the same with AMC, another that's a movie theater company which um, the Wall Street bets traders attacked. They forced that up from a dollar ninety one to over twenty dollars. That's back to about nine dollars now. BlackBerry, too, was another one. So they, they pick these companies that are sort of a little bit kind of yesterday's technology and they kind of need a friend and all the all the big hedge funds are shorting them because they think that they are dinosaurs that are, are going to eventually go extinct. And then the Wall Street bets traders come along and go, yeah, not so fast, you know, and they force the price way up and burn, burn the hedge There are some people... Um saying that they think it's a, there could be pump and dump behind it as well at the other uh, end, at the yes, coming yes, down that, end. That's true, yeah. Pump and dump is you, you just have a big campaign by word of mouth that a, that a share is going to go up. So you, you create all sorts of rumours, you, you get everybody talking about it, you create a buzz. So so you've, you've bought the shares when they were five cents. You start this big campaign of, of um, pumping it People start to pile in, you know, they hear rumours that it's going up and it goes up to 10 cents and 15 cents. And then when you've made your big killing, you just dump it. So what happens is um, you see a share, you know, go from 5 cents to 15 cents inexplicably. There's no no news has been released. There's nothing official. It's all just sort of rumour and buzz. You can see it's been pumped or, or ramped, as, as the saying goes. And then all of a sudden, bang. You know, all the all the people in the know, they, they're dumping it, and it, it just it collapses back down like a souffle. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au. It's amazing how social media can be harnessed or has been harnessed, and this must be one of the biggest and best examples of it with the use of Reddit by that that group, Wall Street Bets, to to actually take on the really established forces at Wall Street. Yes, it's very interesting. A lot of people have described it as a sea change or a, yeah, a, a, a real, you know, shift in the power balance in, in that you've you've now got these very, very large, powerful social media groups and movements that are big enough, um, you know, the collective of individuals is big enough to take on these, you know, billion and trillion dollar hedge funds. I don't know. I mean, if you look at uh, something like um, GameStop, um, whilst the hedge funds did get 
badly punished there. A lot of the individuals involved have also been badly burnt because if you, for instance, one of those characters on um, Wall Street bets, you know, just a mum or dad investor, uh, and you bought those shares when they were $480 because deep effing value told you to do so, <laughs> uh, and, and, and your shares are now worth, uh, you know, a fifth of what you paid for them, you, you, you know, you might have, um, you know, lost the keys to your house. I, I just think that um, there is a lot of potential for people to get caught up in the hype. Mm. I think it's all a great giggle, but, you know, it's, it's the old thing of it's all good fun and games until somebody loses an eye. And uh, Yeah. It's, and, yeah and there's a, a lot of, of people, that community you mentioned, Wall Street Bets, I'm just looking at the Reddit page, they've got 9.3 million what they call degenerates. Okay, so it's gone It's gone from 3 million up to <laughs> <Degenerates>. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, and yeah, all of them degenerates. <laughs> yeah, or and happily so, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and the thing is that, that this is the thing that there's there's a social kind of meaning behind this. These are people who are fed up with what they see is a biased system and an unlevel playing field, and they want to get revenge. And some of them are willing to to take a lot of pain to do it. So they they will happily buy those shares at two hundred, uh, sorry, at four hundred and eighty dollars. And watch them go back to a hundred or forty or whatever, and and even though it's hurting them personally, they don't really care as long as they are hurting Wall Street while they're doing it. So, mm. so there's there's a real social movement here. We're all going to get together and we're going to smash Wall Street, and and we don't care what it takes to do it. You know, we're we're going to cause pain even if we have to suffer pain ourselves. It really is a very interesting thing, and it's it's going to be interesting to see how far this kind of movement goes and how long it lasts. And in my opinion, that's one of the things driving Bitcoin. It's it's sort of millennial-type traders who they may not know much about trading, but they know about things like blockchain, so they understand the, the technology behind it. They've, they've never actually seen a bubble, a financial bubble before, and so they're kind of fearless, and they, they're driven by not so much just looking for profits, but also by sort of philosophy, like they... They feel like, well, fiat money's had its day. You know, that's that's sort of baby boomer stuff. You know, we're digital people. We we think that Bitcoin will become the currency of the future, and so they buy it partly as a matter of identity rather than just you know, is it a good or bad buy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've I've been interested in some of these people, and a part of the theory is that there's a finite amount to gold, and you can't. Um, you can't benefit from the Cantillon effect with a finite amount of supply of value. Um, and so they're getting into Bitcoin for the reason that it's finite, but other cryptocurrencies are coming up and, you know, it's just not true because uh, people are putting their money into various different cryptocurrencies. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Unfortunately, that logic is also what stopped me from buying Bitcoin when they were two cents. Uh, <laughs> US Bitcoin. Um, we won't talk about it anymore then. <laughs> no, we, we probably shouldn't, but uh, just, just as an aside, I worked out that if I bought the 250,000 Bitcoin that, that would have cost me 5,000 um, US dollars at the time I was considering it, yeah. until I decided it was a bad idea. You'd be a multi-billionaire. Um, if I'd done that, uh, no, not a multi-millionaire. I would have been worth 15 
billion dollars. Yeah. Fifteen billion dollars yeah. by buying five thousand US dollars worth of Bitcoin when they were two cents. So it gives you an idea that even in this day and age, it's still possible for one, you know, for a lucky person who who bought two hundred fifty thousand Bitcoin and then forgot they bought them to you know wake up um, ten years later and find that they're worth fifteen billion. Although good luck trying to liquidate them into actual currency yeah and and you know there's a guy in england who did something like that and he he threw the hard drive that had the bitcoin record stored on it and it wound up in landfill and i believe he has been scouring through a mountain of of rubbish (laughs) for several years if you if you look at the guy he's he's scouring through a mountain of rubbish looks like a, a yeah Looks um, like a bum. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's actually a potential multi-billion. Yeah. yeah, searching for a billion-dollar um, hard drive. Yeah. Well, that's that's funny. That's a bit like you know being a um, you know a gold or a diamond prospector with a with a metal detector. Mm. Sure. True. Yeah, true. You look true. Hard drive. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, one one thing that you raised, which is quite interesting, is the role of gold and silver and traditional stores of value in all this. I'm a little bit of a gold bug because. I, I agree with the point you made that whilst Bitcoin itself is finite and it's costing more and more to, to mine each new Bitcoin now and eventually there won't be any more, the, the problem is that, as you said, there's nothing to stop other cryptocurrencies from being invented. And in fact, that's happened. So there's Ethereum, there's Bitcoin Lite, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Uh, and the list goes on. So even though Bitcoin itself is finite, the number of potential cryptocurrencies you, could, you can invent is, is not so finite. And I still think that ultimately it, it's a massive game of pass the parcel that, that there, there is, yeah. um, you know, th- there is a massive bubble effect taking place at the moment. So whilst I'm not allowed to advise, and, and I wouldn't advise anyone because most of the biggest gains in these sort of bubbles are right near the end. So, you know, you, you could maybe buy Bitcoin now and see it go from 50000 Dollars to two hundred thousand, and, and also the crashes happen like yeah. a chain chain reaction and nuclear exactly. Reaction. Yeah, I think I think when when the when the crash comes in in things like Bitcoin, it could be the biggest loss of wealth globally we've ever seen. Oh wow, wow! Well, well, I mean, if you if you look at what Bitcoin and the other um, cryptos are capitalised at now, you know, we're talking we're talking trillions and trillions of dollars and. Um, I think that the the fall could be as precipitous as um, you know as the rise. Of yeah, the- no, I'm I'm surprised because in my mind, it's still a small thing. It has been for a long, long time. It's sort of been out on the edge. It's, it was a small thing, but now at the current valuation of fifty thousand dollars a bitcoin, and, and I mean Ethereum and other ones have also risen to massive multiples along with bitcoin. Uh, if you if you add it all up now, it's we're talking trillions and trillions of dollars. Yeah. Wow. With gold, that's a slightly different thing. Even though gold might appear to have an infinite supply, uh, well, it's not infinite. There's a finite amount, but we keep mining it. But the the cost of um, the cost of mining gold, similar to Bitcoin, you know, it, it's it's a big part of the equation. Um, the the cost of mining it. The thing about gold is that it is unique in that you, you can't, you 
don't have a kind of an Ethereum equivalent of gold uh, and, unless, you know, nanotechnology somehow succeeds in creating other metals that are, are similar. But certainly Alchemy, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know whether that's even uh, possible under the laws of physics. But, but anyway, I mean, gold itself is actually unique. It, it, there's nothing that's malleable and can be melted down and reconstituted without any loss and, you know, conducts electricity and, you know, does, does all the things that gold does. And, and also it's got that history going back thousands of years that everyone agrees that it looks nice and they want it. Mm. Uh, they want to make it into jewellery and so forth. And, and it just has that history which cryptocurrency doesn't have. So if, if there's a crisis of confidence in, in Bitcoin, I don't think there's anything to stop it from falling out of bed, whereas gold might have falls every now and again. But fundamentally, it gets to a level where people go, well, you know, it's, 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 it's worth, you know, it's a precious metal. It's worth something. I'm going to start buying at these levels. I can turn it into jewellery. All my female friends will want to have a, you know, lovely set of gold earrings and so on. So, yeah, um, it's, uh, yeah. it's, a, better, it's, it's a better sort of store of value. It's got more intrinsic value, surely. Yeah, some people say that gold has no intrinsic value. It's just a, a lump of yellow stuff, but... But um, I think if you've got a, you know, sort of 10,000 year history or whatever it is mm. um, of being a store of value and you're, you're somehow unique, you know, it can't be replicated, mm. um, that, that makes it a more reliable store of value. And silver, of course, is now becoming very sought after an industry. Um, it's also got a, you know, a, a, you know, many thousand year history of being a store of value. It's got some advantages over gold even because um, the amount of gold you would have to have to buy a loaf of bread would be so small that you'd kind of easily lose it, whereas um, silver is a bit more practical as a currency because it's only worth about somewhere between you know, a fortieth and a, and a hundredth of gold depending on the current trading conditions. Looking at coin market cap now, it looks like the market cap of Bitcoin, so that's at $50,271 per unit, per Bitcoin, that gives a market cap of just shy of a trillion dollars. A trillion, yeah. Yeah, so that's wow. 937... So if, you add, if you add in Ethereum and all the other... Oh, um, heaps more. You're talking several trillion dollars. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Unbelievable. And, and the volume, which I assume on this, I'm just going to check that, that's... The amount traded in the in the last twenty four hours of Bitcoin is over sixty billion dollars worth. Jeez, uh, there are people. There are some people who, who think a crash is coming, aren't there? There has to be. It's uh, it's yeah. and and I think it's really interesting what Guy said before about you know if if these things crash, just the amount of damage that they that inflicts. Yeah. Uh, is going to be pretty amazing, and and what, then what could also is, uh, trigger other asset classes as well. Could it could be the trigger for everything? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, look, I think every everything at the moment is quite exposed. Um, the the share market, some of the valuations are getting silly again, like they were in the dot com boom, and back then people were justifying it, you know, with with the old just a new situation which we've never seen before. The world's changing, and you know it's going to go on like this forever what I call the paradigm shift is people saying, you know, there's been a paradigm shift, you know, invest in the dot-com companies, even though they seem to be overvalued because we're all, 
we're going digital, everything's changing, and they're just going to get more and more valuable. Now, at the moment, I think there's another sort of paradigm shift occurring with things like Bitcoin. You know, there are a lot of people saying that um, you know everything's different now. Uh, Bitcoin can just keep going to the moon. You know, it's going to be a million dollars of Bitcoin, and that that might happen. But I am absolutely sure at some point there's going to be a reckoning because nothing I, in the financial markets ever goes up forever. I literally have been in coffee shops when in the dot-com crash 2000, I heard one guy say to another, get into dot-com, it can never go down. Exactly. Um, yeah. It'll and never go down. And when you hear that, that's the moment you should start thinking about exiting. Yeah, when you hear it on the street, that's the moment... And I also, the same event, exactly the same happened to me, seriously, um, in 2008. Well, even the, the president of the US was selling real estate. George Bush was, do you remember? He went on TV. Yep. Uh, it'll never go down. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah, so when you hear that it can't go down, that's when you should start to worry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, worried on that front. For Australian property, uh, and I'm worried about yeah. the share market. I'm completely out of things like um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. I feel like there's a, a kind of a wave of euphoria, a sort of a post-COVID euphoria, which is sweeping all markets, and it's fueled by real, you know, by real fundamentals, which is the fact that what else do you do with your money? You know, you, you, there's no point putting it in the bank because you're not getting any return on it. Mm. You know, you may as well put it under the mattress. So, therefore, you can argue that there's a logical reason why money is still pouring into share markets, into the property market, into cryptocurrencies, into collectibles, you name it. The only thing is, at some point, that euphoria will disappear and the mood will turn sour. And at, at that moment, there will be a rush for the exits like you've never seen before. Even though it's easy to say, look, there's nowhere else for money to go, there is always somewhere else for money to go, and that's under the mattress. So, you know, yeah. people start seeing, gee, you know, shares are plummeting, real estate's plummeting, Bitcoin's plummeting. Even though I, I get nothing on my money in the bank, it's better there than, than losing value in, in um, you know, shares and property and e so on. Except um, if you have hyperinflation as well. Ah, uh, yeah, that's, yeah. that's the thing. Yeah, yeah, hyperinflation... That, that's the ace in the pack. Uh, if we get hyperinflation, we we enter a very dangerous, volatile, and totally unpredictable environment where there will be massive winners and massive losers. But overall, society will become very fractured, and there will be a, a know, lot of problems. Mm. I know the business schools, like especially Harvard Business School, teach that with modern monetary theory, you can have increasing, increasing debt and not have inflation. But I seriously, um, I think they're fooling themselves. I just don't yeah, see that, how that can happen. To me, to me, it sounds like a perpetual motion machine. You, you can, kind <laughs> yes. of, you can yeah. propose it and you can sort of put together a plan that looks good, but in reality, no one's ever been able to make it work. So I somehow feel like that you're getting something for nothing and you're going against the laws of the universe, that you're, that you're somehow getting a free lunch. Yeah, yeah just, it's 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 in, it is interesting. I mean, we've sort of touched on this before when we're talking about printing money, 
when they sort of say, and this is uh, quantitative easing, the Americans have been doing it since the GFC in 2008, and Australia has only started doing it fairly recently, I believe, in the last 18 months or so, a couple of years, that it's been sort of actively embraced by governments in Australia. But when they say, when you talk about printing money, you're not physically, you're not making up sort of the shortfall that you've got because you spend it all on bailing people out of COVID recession or whatever. You're, you're just adjusting numbers on a spreadsheet at the Reserve Bank yeah. of Australia, aren't you? You're not physically making the uh, the, the presses, the, the mint, produce more $100 bills in a day than they normally would, are you? No, no, you're, you're right. You're, yeah, you're theoretically increasing the money supply, but it has, it has the same effect. There's still more money in the system and... As a result, I mean, it's just by logic, if you if you keep on creating more money in the system, then the finite number of goods and services that are available must become more expensive because otherwise you could just create um, a greater money supply and, and miraculously have more cars and more houses <laughs> and more private jets. You know, I, um, yeah. 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 So, so what, what this means is that is that somewhere down the track, inevitably... And it must already be happening, but, but it might not be obvious yet. There must be inflation occurring. Money itself, actual paper money, is is deflating in value. It, 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 yeah, it everything becomes be more expensive. Yeah, exactly. The way the way I've heard it explained is that when the investors start to see what is coming and take their money out of debt and put it into a safe haven. And then they're able to spend it on on things. They're able to spend it on expensive cars, bigger houses, all that sort of stuff, because they're safer. That's when the money starts to enter the real economy and starts to cause inflation. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. One interesting thing about the the sort of debasement of um, of fiat currency, fiat currency meaning paper money, which is backed by a government. In other words. You know, you've got a hundred dollar bill, and and on that bill is effectively written the Australian government guarantees to give you a hundred dollars worth of goods and services in exchange yeah. for for this piece of paper. It's a promissory yeah, note. Just jump in. The, uh, the yeah. term fiat term fiat means by decree. Correct. So that's right. You just say this is money by decree of the government. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So so the the debasement of fiat currency by, by simply producing more and more and more of it so that it becomes less valuable. What, what that means is that real things like, like gold and silver that you can bite or put in your pocket or whatever, or pre-World War I Rolls Royces or a painting by Monet or something, those things, they appear to be going up in value. Gold appears to be going up in value. Silver appears to be going up in value. All, all these things are going up in value. Real estate's going up in value. But is it really? No. What's happening is those things are still, you know, they're, they're still the same supply. What's happening is that paper money is depreciating. But because we, because we do everything using paper money, we are not aware of, of the, that money becoming, you know, less valuable. What we see it's all relativity. We we see property prices going up, gold prices going up, silver prices going up, share market going up. What that's telling us is not that all these things suddenly, for some bizarre reason, have decided to go up together. It's that paper money is going down, and so it looks like they're all going up. That's 
very interesting. But in Australia, and it's, I think it's a trend that is happening in a lot of the developed world, we don't use paper money. When did you last have any cash in your wallet? Now, I know that there's a distinction that, you know, what you're, t- I understand what you're talking, you're talking about cash as a, the same. Yeah, it, sorry, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say paper money. Let, let's just say those, those zeros and ones and twos and so on that you have in your bank account, your actual cash as represented by your bank balance. Yeah. That, yeah. that, that money, the, the utility that we use to exchange goods and services, that fiat currency, the hundred thousand dollars that you've got sitting in your bank account, that is losing value relative to relative to real things. So relative to the car that you have in your shed, your money is losing value, and the car is actually staying the same. But but what you see is you see the price of cars going up, or the price of whatever going up. Now at the moment there's not much of that happening because of because of the tough economic conditions. So what's happening is that car makers and other goods and services makers there's a lot of discounting a lot of competition Mm. but where you do see it in things like gold and silver and collectibles and things where there isn't that sort of normal economic boys toys yeah exactly things like that so so it it is happening already there's been a, a marked depreciation in the value of fiat currency but it's all relative you know, we, we don't see it that way. We, we always think that money is just the same because it's what we use to denominate everything else. And this is a sort of slight curveball, but just thinking over what you've said in the last 10 minutes, is capitalism broken? <laughs> That's a fantastic question. That is a fantastic question. I, look, I, I think when, when you ask a question like that, you're getting squarely into the realms of, of, of sort of philosophy and just deep social issues of fairness mm, and mm. You know, what, what, it, what it is to be a human and part of a community in the world today. And it, that, that sort of lies outside my yeah. expertise. I, and I, I wouldn't presume to tell the listeners, you know, the answer to something like that. But I guess... It's I, more mm. an opinion, you know. Yeah, no, I, I understand I understand what you mean, Guy. And I know it's, I know it, it's, a, it's sort of a left-field question in this context. But I guess what made me write that down as a question just to remember to ask was just the talk about, you know, when you have hyperinflation combined with the, the herd suddenly wanting to get out of everything. So you, you, cra- yeah. you crash every market that exists, property, equity, Bitcoin, you name it. They all crash with a flight to the, to the exit, yeah. which, which is cash. And then you've got hyperinflation. Then you've and you and you said it. I mean, we there are examples. You've mentioned the Weimar Republic in Germany between the two world wars, and then also you know you don't even have to look that far back in time. I mean, there are countries in the in the world now that have got hyperinflation, and and they have all sorts of social um, problems that go from that. And that's where if you had a flight from every asset class, equities, property precious metals, whatever it is, to the exit to uh, to cash. And then that world that that cash was going into, the cash was valueless. Then isn't capitalism broken then? Yeah, look, I, I think, yeah, that's, that's obviously an extreme and awful scenario. If it did come to that, then I would definitely agree that capitalism was broken. I, I guess... At the moment, it, it hasn't come to that, although it's, it's sort of looking a little bit 
dangerous and threatening. But um, I, I suppose if you put that question to you know somebody who is a supporter of capitalism, they would probably come back with a counter question of, then what do you propose instead? And and you know the answers are obvious. There's there's communism, there's socialism, there's you know various yeah, other yeah there's autonomous collectivism or whatever. There's all these different things, but yeah, you know, you're just you're sort of getting into political science and stuff there. And I'm um, more happy with capitalism than I am with most of the other alternatives in practice. Mm. But that's not to say that capitalism doesn't have a lot of social dangers and that there shouldn't be some intervention by governments against rampant capitalism or the kind of capitalism that that tends to run rampant in bull markets where, you know, the very privileged and the big players manage to bend the rules to their own advantage to such an extent that there's a redistribution of wealth from the poor to the rich. And and this has happened... And and that's what happened in 2008. Yeah. You know, basically there'd been a massive redistribution of wealth to the wolves of Wall Street from, from ordinary, you know, mortgage holders and stuff in the US. It nearly sort of ripped the country apart at the seams and, and, and also the rest of the globe as collateral damage. And I think in, in 2020, the world's multi-billionaires did better than any other group. There's reasons why you could explain that and the, and the fact that a lot of them were in tech, which yes. did well because of lockdown, people working from home and the digital economy and so on. But it definitely seems that the very, very top have even had even more wealth concentrated in their hands in the last 12 months since the pandemic started. That's correct. I think that's been a trend globally for as long as I've been alive. I think over over time, the wealthy have tended to get wealthier. But at the same time, I suppose there's also been a lot of raising people out of poverty in, in other parts of the world too. Mm. But yeah, look, it's, it's a very, very unfair world. The, the question is whether... It's more unfair under capitalism or whether, you know, it's more unfair if you're living under Soviet-style communism or Chinese-style sort of capitalist communism or sort of weird blend that they've got. Mm. There, There just doesn't seem to be a system which produces consistently great results. Otherwise, I guess more people would be doing it. I mean, I know people hold up Scandinavia and places like that as good examples of where socialism has been successful. Mm. But then there are places like Venezuela and so on where they make a mess of it. You know, the ordinary person does not benefit at all. So it's it's a really, really difficult question, quite an interesting one. I think I'll leave it for the political scientists to argue about. Yeah. Ian, have you got any questions to throw in relating to maths yeah. and market science and markets? I, I think that we have to admit that there is a kind of socialism in how banks operate. They're tightly controlled. A lot of those controls under that were under Glass-Steagall have become controls that benefit the rich. And a lot of what has happened is people have become, people have slowly cottoned on to it. Some effing, what's his name? <laughs> Deep effing value. Yeah. Deep effing value. <laughs> um, I do have, like I have faith in, in the people we, we almost had fascism in, in, in the US. I think very, very close. The Proud Boys is very, very similar to the black shirts. Um, mm. 
what they were doing at the Capitol was very, very similar to what they what they did, you know, with Crystal Nacht and with um, the burning the, the, of the rice thugs and that sort of thing. The, the knife uh, of the long knives or whatever. Yeah. Democracy is a great thing and it prevailed in this case. That's down to the people realising that they had to do something. Uh, the Democrats, I have no faith in the Democrats, but we averted a really horrible turn of events. Maybe it's risky saying that because he was president and, you know, he has a lot of power. I have faith in, in the people. They can see what's going on and democracy can improve things. You've got to remember that Northern Europe is, is democratic socialist. To me, democracy is the noun and socialist is the, is the adjective. I don't think you can get away without having some some regulation and some rules. You know, it just falls apart. Things like Glass-Steagall, they've happened before. They probably will happen again. But I guess we'll see where things are going. I certainly don't know where things are going. I don't There's think anybody one... knows where things are going. <laughs> they, they claim to know, but um, that m most people know after the fact. I would rather a leader who admitted that than who tried to con me into believing something else. Can I ask one question? We seem to be winding up, but there's one question that interests me. I was talking to uh, people at work about shorting. You know, I've watched the movie Big Short, and I've just about got my head around shorting. But there's a thing called naked shorting. Uh, naked shorts. People yes. keep talking about naked shorts. It seems not to me that it's not as much fun as it sounds, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems to me that if you're wearing shorts, you're not naked. Boom, boom. Um, but, <laughs> um, so it's not as much fun. Okay. So, but can you sort of explain what's happening with naked shorts? Yeah. Yeah, I can tell you. Um, look, it's it's pretty simple. Not to do normal short selling. You, you have to have an agreement, uh, you know, a written agreement, which, which says that you've borrowed those shares that you're selling from somebody else and you're going to, you're going to give it back to them. So you, you can't short without having that agreement in place with somebody who actually owns the shares. So the shares that are being sold in normal short selling are shares that actually exist. And therefore, you could sort of argue that they have the right to be sold. I can see where however, this is heading. This is unbelievable. Yes, okay. However, yes. Naked short selling, you simply sell shares that do not exist. You don't borrow them from somebody else. You, you just go, right, I'm selling, I'm selling 10,000 shares and you get paid for them. And then when the other person says, well, where are my shares? Ah, oh, that's not a problem. I'll get them for you just soon. You, <laughs> having forced the price down, you then buy them back on market. And you eventually deliver them, possibly possibly a bit late or, or whatever, and you pay a few penalties or whatever. But you basically sold shares you did not have. You sold them naked. And then you try to buy them back on market at a cheaper price and you pocket the difference. Yeah, the reason why um, that practice was made illegal is that in, in some very well-documented uh, cases, the person was unable to ever buy those shares back at any price because... You know, whatever, something happened, so then uh, you've got a big problem. They made it illegal, but I'm, I'm told that the practice still does sometimes occur. Yeah, it's it's pretty disreputable practice because you, you are pretty blatantly cheating the system doing that. And Guy, aren't they tightening up on people who use things like IG markets, secondary markets? 
Isn't the Australian government, I think other governments elsewhere in the world are tightening up rules on, on the amount of debt that you can use for those secondary markets? Is that true? Yeah, that, that's, that's true. Yeah, because people were able to, to borrow ridiculous amounts of money, like get really highly leveraged mm. to, in order to manipulate markets one way or the other. Imagine you're just a normal, ordinary person and you could borrow $2 million you know, to buy some kind of put option or something on, on an ordinary business that's listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. I don't know whether that can actually be done in Australia, but, but there's certainly markets where you could do that through, through IG. And, you know, if people can sort of leverage to ridiculous extents, you know, and if something goes wrong, they're not really held accountable. I mean, the, the worst that can happen is you go broke. Mm. Or the government bails you out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you've got moral hazard where the government might bail you out, especially if you're a, a big player doing it. Mm. So they basically um, have started to tighten up and say that you know there, there has to be a limit on the amount of leverage people can get to what is essentially gamble on these um, very risky derivatives markets. It's gambling, and it, and it can also be seen as manipulation because if you've got enough financial heft behind you. You, you can really manipulate the prices of thinly traded securities uh, or shares, as yeah. they're usually called. Yep. If you're doing that with borrowed money, you're not even using your own money to do it. It becomes particularly odious. Look, it's such an interesting conversation. And, you know, it's interesting how these things do sort of flow into social questions. I think that's sort of inevitable. Um, that, yep. that you are kind of you're forced to take it to str- beyond a discussion strictly about how markets work and, and what investments are out there and why things are going the way they are. That example that came up about um, you know GameStop and and this Reddit group you know led by that uh, classically named person. His real name is Michael Frawley, but his handle is, is Deep Effing Value. How those sort of groups social media based groups can can actually form a a block and have have an effect as well there's a whole lot of different themes here but a really really fascinating conversation i really appreciate both of your time to uh, contribute to this this discussion and let's do it again uh you know at some stage in the future and we can perhaps you know go from the sort of more general discussion we've had today to perhaps uh, narrow it down into some more specific topics can i just add how good it is to have someone who has experience in the real world with this stuff guys experience thanks ian uh, appreciate it yeah it's been it really helps good really fun helps. talking to both of you and um thanks for conducting it Piers. that's my pleasure yeah and i agree totally with what ian, ian said thank you ian for bringing guy in definitely great to have a professional share market investor on board and a chess master in the form of guy west uh, international chess master weren't you uh, I, I have the title of international master, but um, in, in real world terms, I, I was Australian champion and Australian Open champion. I'm a long, long way below world champion calibre. Australia's only ranked about, uh, I think, about 60th in the world at chess right. out of about 180 countries. So uh, I'm, I'm not a not a world beater, but I, I have played against Gary Kasparov and. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, did not distinguish myself well in that game. But, um, you know, we won't talk about that. <laughs> uh, and also to Ian Story, lecturer in information security at the business school at Torrens University. So thanks very much to both Ian and Guy for joining the conversation today.
I look forward to another opportunity to chat with you guys because I thought this was really fascinating conversation which touched on some really interesting things and it just underscores the fact that we live in very interesting times, maybe uncertain and volatile, but very, very interesting as well. Beyond the